The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirerod. Today, we bring you Griffin Barber's discussion with Michael Merceau about Merceau's new novel, The Silent Hand. Let's take a listen. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Our guest today, Michael Marcel, is a bit cagey about his background, but his website reveals his international upbringing and a continued interest in international affairs. I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about Michael as we discuss his excellent book, The Silent Hand. Hello and welcome, Michael. Hey, Griffin. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, uh, hardest question first. What was the coolest aspect of The Silent Hand for you? That's a, I think that is a, a tough one. There's a lot of uh, stuff I was glad to, to get in there, but definitely going back and sort of uh, exploring Inga's past and her connection to the uh, Sinclair Maru family has been, uh, been a treat. And uh, there's a lot there that I really enjoyed. And so you didn't quite stumble on that. It looks like you might've been setting up for that or uh, uh, having to work on that towards that from the uh, first novel um did the character dictate kind of what their background was going to be or what it had to be for you yeah i think the the, the concept of having a uh not exactly tragic but you know this sort of uh high risk high reward um altered character in there as a as a uh you know uh well the silent hand right the the edge of the knife um assisting safe in his his efforts for the family uh I, I knew that that the background on inga was going to be um maybe a little dark but uh certainly interesting and, and full of twists and turns so yeah i think from yeah well, well within the first book i i knew that it was going to be uh it was going to be fun going back and, and going through her backstory and how much of that did you have already in hand, like as you were working on The Deep Man? I think it was kind of a, uh, t took the form of a collection of sort of bullet points, you know, elements and ideas about uh, possible interactions. Uh, I think that stuff, you know, you kind of, set up a, a a cloud of possible environments and situations and then and then narrow it down to uh as much as the the book will allow very but, cool so yeah we didn't get to to know a lot about her background uh in the deep man so it was uh it was quite exciting to be able to kind of uh, delve into that and that that aspect of the uh the house uh the sinclair uh I always drop the, the second half. I'm bad with names. Yeah, Sinclair Maru. Uh, the Sinclair Maru, yes. And uh, she is, of course, Inga Maru. So she's an offshoot uh, of the, uh, or she is a descendant of an offshoot of the family or one half of the family. Yeah, uh, correct. Yeah, the, their family, uh, not all of them took the, uh, the combined name. And so she's kind of a, a distant relative. And that uh, that offshoot fell into uh, poverty and disgrace and addiction, and she's kind of uh, clawing her way back from that. 
and and she is not uh th that's one thing about the citizens the, as opposed to the demisets that we'll get into a bit later but the, there is no safety net for them they choose to uh, their families at some point choose to be uh, citizens or as individuals they can choose to be citizens and there is no safety net for them but there's also no uh, proposed limit on where they can rise to correct is that is that how that works yeah exactly they're they they are sort of waiving their right to uh you know uh publicly provided health care and housing um but at the same time you know again it's that that opting in for uh, self-direction and responsibility, opting in for higher risk and higher reward. So uh, a little sideways step here. Which character in the silent hand surprised you? I think uh, probably uh, Specialist Shay Ramos was, I think, the uh, the most surprising. Um, his, his involvement in the deep man, you know, as a... Uh, sort of would, would be saboteur. Um, a, he's, you know, he's a kind of a fish out of water the entire time. So he provides a great outside perspective into things, um, peculiarities about, uh, you know, the Imperial Navy and those customs and things, which is, a you know, always a useful perspective. Uh, and the, but then and the split between the demi sit and the sit. Sure. Exactly. And then, uh, yeah, at the end of the book, it's not really, uh, resolved. Like, you know, they've, they've, they're back on dry land, so to speak, and he's got people waiting for the uh, results of his mission. And so uh, that I knew that we were going to be going into some of some of that, you know, uh, deeper machinations, but some of his interaction with uh, Winter Young and, and their connections, I think, developed in a direction I wasn't really anticipating before I got into it. So how did he come to be? I mean, obviously he was he was uh, from the deep man uh, going into this the silent hand, but how did he uh, come to be in the first place? He he was needed as that lens. I think I needed I needed a character to come in and be um be that that sort of external view. So you don't just go into, you know, all, all these characters who have been in the Imperial Navy for prolonged periods talking to each other on the As bridge you know, about Bob. standard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's just so having someone from the outside to ask questions and poke around with things uh, is just, you know, incredibly useful uh, to that end. But then he's also just some of his interactions with Loki and, you know, the other crew members. I, I think he uh, uh, he served as a as a really uh, yeah, fun and useful lens. And uh, yeah, it's nice to see him still rolling, you know, still, still part of the uh, part of events as they develop here. Yeah. Not on those, uh, not continuing on the fork or necessarily on the fork of uh, all the uh, dilemmas that you put in this way in the first one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so which character from the silent hand would you want to avoid like the plague and why? <laughs> oh man. Uh you know, probably I would have to say uh, um, Krenner, uh, Galen Krenner, the uh, you know head of the uh, ten and twenty uh, Marine Force. Right. Uh, just because I don't think 
that he would feel I painted him in a particularly flattering light. And I just, you really wouldn't want to be on his bad side. I personally think I would find myself on his bad side and uh, that's not where you want to be. Yeah. He, he does put off uh, uh, the worst kind of eighties quarterback energy. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, much more useful if he's, if he's on your side, uh, yeah. but yeah. And but he does show that uh, I don't want to spoil it. He's he actually shows that he's he's got, got the right uh, idea, um, despite his uh, the way it kind of uh, it projects into the the reality around him. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't make put a, too many feet wrong. Uh, yeah, when yeah, it, think... push comes to shove, he knows which way the, to point towards the enemy. Yeah, it's, I think it makes things uh, makes things a lot easier when your enemies aren't aren't you know fellow humans i think that, right. that straightens things out you know <laughs> so which character would you want as an ally oh now that that is a hard question um i mean you know the uh winter young and and uh her resources as uh an agent of the, uh, you know, of Imperial intelligence is high on that list. Obviously, you know, get you Inga or safe. Too. right. Yeah. yeah. That's and I'd say, you know, Inga or maybe, or safe, but then, you know, that their, their loyalties are likely always going to stay with the family. So, right. you know, uh, probably, probably Loki. Hmm. I think I'd have to go with Loki having, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's my, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the Orson Scott card uh, nostalgia kicking in there, but having uh, having an AI to to chum around with seems seems like a good time, yeah. and uh, his capabilities often uh, often prove useful in a pinch. Yeah, well, and he's also going to need your protection as opposed right. to most everybody else to be like, oh, I got this. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I might actually be able to help Loki a little bit, provide some right. value there, as opposed yeah. to just uh, getting in the way. Yeah, the the one that comes to my mind is just maybe not necessarily as an ally, but the guy I'd want to pal around with, and I forget his name again, but the uh, the NCO, the fallen uh, house guy on the uh, in the ground forces in the Legion. Um, oh, uh, white white side. Yeah, white side. He he. <laughs> I, I really, I, everything he said, everything he did in that whole thing, the uh, entire length of the, the invasion, uh, it was just uh, really fun for me. I, I really enjoyed it because it's, here's a guy who kind of, he knows what's better and what's going to happen. And he, rather than uh, fight it directly, he just decides, well, I'm going to channel this, this way. So we're going to take it this way. Sure. We could do that if you want to die. We're going to do it this way. Uh, I just love that. And I, I that was kind of the the reason why I'd like, even if if, if not as an ally, that at least as a, as a buddy to hang around with, because that would be some fun, I think. Yeah, he was a, he, he was a, a joy to write. A little, little bit of, a, of, I think, indulgence on my part, but uh, I, I uh, enjoy, enjoy putting characters like that on the page. Well, I guess a, sort of a similar thing with uh, with uh, Claude, um, more so in the in, you know in the first book. Uh, oh yes, Claude's absolutely. But Claude, you know, it's it's 
for me, it's kind of fun to watch Claude because you, you never know what, how much, you know, if it's 95% put on show, right. 5% reality. Whereas with this guy, you kind of know what you're getting. Like I said, you kind of, you know, he's, he's not, he's not full of BS unless you're a commanding officer doing the wrong thing. All right. All right. At which point he's going to turn on the BS machine and, and let fly. Uh, I really enjoyed that. So thank you. Uh, that was one of the uh, fun parts about this. Just to let you know, also, I hadn't read The Deep Man when I started to read The Silent Hand. And I got so into The Silent Hand, I'm like, okay, I got to stop. And I got to read The Deep Man. So I stopped. I went back. I read The Deep Man. And I went, wow, that was a lot of fun. And I went on to The Silent Hand. So uh, you have a couple, an exceptional pair of books here. So uh, glad to hear it. I appreciate that. that. Uh, so the empire of the silent hand has a terrifying enemy, including a fifth column, which reaches out at times to wreak havoc on the war effort with their sudden appearance. Were there any conflicts in human history, which inspired, uh, this enemy, the characters face? I think, and then we're, we're speaking of, uh, uh, the, the strangers here, correct? Yep. The, yes. uh, just for for clarity yeah i think if there was a if there was an inspiration here i think some of the uh cold war fear over you know the concept of russian sleeper agents and you know that sort of manchurian candidate sort of idea of you know having the people people around you people that are close people that you trust um suddenly you know not be those people anymore i think right. that that's the uh maybe the uh closest inspiration well there is a significant level of creep that comes into it that i really dug i thought it was very cool because it's it uh kind of combines some of the zombie stuff that i really like and that same kind of thing where it's like you just can't trust you don't know who to trust because once this happens, these these kind of things, and also the way that you combined uh, the technology with the threat, with the technology needing being needed to uh, enhance your life and to better your situation and to enhance the war effort, all of these things kind of combining into this uh, mix of what war is kind of really like for for me. In any case, is the idea of it is that it's not just one threat. You're not going to pull one cause out and have it all be apparent uh, sure. but you, know, you have all of these things going on and it's it's murky uh and that i thought was a really cool uh mechanism like the 3d printers or the the i'm not even necessarily 3d printers but yeah the, yeah the fabs the and space yeah, fabs. Fabric, yeah. fabricators that uh, are uh, basically useless until you make jump i thought that was a really cool uh concept to have uh, and uh, I'm interested to see where it's going to go in the next few uh, books. Hopefully there are going to be multiple. It'll be a Bane trilogy and that it'll have five or six books instead of just three. <laughs> um, but uh, moving on from there, there's a, uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier. We touched on it. There's a fascinating class distinction in the silent hand with demi sits and citizens, which you touch on uh, a little bit more intensely just to kind of lay the groundwork in the deep man. Um but uh, it reminded me of one of my favorite series, The Prince by Pornell and Steve Sterling. Um, was this a conscious choice or a happy circumstance? Or is there anything more you can tell us about how this social and political system came to you? Um, and I'm actually not familiar with The Prince. So that's something I, I will uh, I'll get on my, my reading list. Yeah, right. 
uh, it's something I'll get on my reading list and uh, take a look at. So uh, no, this uh, there was years ago, and uh, regrettably, I, I don't recall the name of it. There was a um, a short story, a little science fiction short story. Uh, said to be back in the early eighties, I want to say. It, uh, but yeah, it, it discussed sort of a similar kind of uh, voluntary class system uh, where you could sort of escalate, you know, you could, you could choose to be uh, essentially a ward of the state, you know, um, right. and, uh, or, or you could opt into, you know, free freedom and, and self-responsibility and, uh, you know, all the attendant risks that came with that. And, Interesting because uh, uh, you know Heinlein's got the whole you know with uh, service become citizenship kind of thing, but this is sure, a bit different. Sure. This is like you know no, you can you basically forswear all this you know this the the nanny state taking care of you uh, in order to uh, take all the risks and hopefully reap the rewards, but it's not necessarily service with the state that will do that. Correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and I, th I think it's really sort of there to juxtapose the kind of the difference in values from if you have folks in society that, that value you know uh safety and security and sort of reduction reduction of risk or reduction of harm um and the state can provide that and uh, you know you'd say it, i think it's important that the state be able to provide that but on the other hand you know uh freedom liberty the the you know the ability to choose your own path and uh not wear a seatbelt if you don't want to and you know <laughs> right. it's the uh i don't know there's a two very different perspectives that come up and i think it's from a sort of core difference in values so sort of giving those outlets within the same society right and it, it's fascinating to me too because the even the houses don't necessarily not all of them are like the sinclair maru in that they they provide uh, service to the military uh, other houses right. are pretty much focused entirely on mercantile things and you know that kind of stuff uh, and or they you know if they serve in the military it's not so much or they or excuse me if they serve the government it's not so much as the military but in other functions uh, I thought that was cool at least that's what I kind of gathered I don't want to uh... yeah yeah no they're definitely uh, in the uh, this long interval of relative peace that they've seen uh yeah not 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 many people are finding it uh sustainable or profitable to to maintain any sort of uh martial skill or martial capability so except when it comes to each other right right yeah they're still dueling but not not as much as the actual military service yeah yeah and even even in those contexts where it's it's, it's kind of falling out of style certainly you know certainly as i say pr pruning the tree of nobility actual Actual killing in duels is is uh, quite rare. Uh, in, in the other houses, it's you know mostly a, a pride or uh, you know showmanship thing, less so of an actual uh, removing bounders and blackguards from the from nobility. Yeah, that's the the fact that Safe has has gone through all these duels and you know, the various gravities and. Uh, that kind of thing is always a, a kind of a neat uh, 
juxtaposition when you have uh, his uh, his friend friend Claude and how he is and and that kind of thing. So it's it, it is quite fascinating. I, I really enjoy the the through a mirror darkly of some of those some of the stuff like the the uh, when the uh, the newly made citizen when he returns uh, home to his uh, stuff. Okay, and yeah, he's interacting with his demi sit old buddies. And they're, you know, getting their education, et cetera, but they're not going to technically do anything with it. It's all going to be academic, like literally academic. Right. For them. Uh, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, it's the, it, it also is the, uh, those are my friends that went into military service uh, in, in the 90s or, or earlier. They all kind of like went this route and then they got their education later on when they kind of had burned off what they feel, felt was not necessary to their education, um, that kind of thing. So pretty interesting to me. I, I thought that was a pretty cool uh, mechanism, again, to show how the culture is is uh, working and also how we might end up uh, if things go a certain way. Right. Um, so uh, the Silent Hand uh, also follows a Legion team engaged in land warfare. We talked about this a little bit. Uh, and not having an easy time of it at all, uh, which reveals for your reader what land warfare is like in your far future. Um, the invasion reminded me of the early days uh, of the D-Day invasion by airborne forces, but with less coordination. Um, did I guess right on the inspiration for these scenes? It's, I, I think, I mean, certainly in, in, uh, invasions i think you know world war ii had a lot of great examples of that uh in some ways the landing with a tight pack and then spreading out is more of a sort of amphibious assault sort of parallel right. to uh to the uh, the airborne insertions but uh even even then you know uh most uh most of the d-day operation the lion's share of that was all was all um you know an army effort whereas the i think the most most of the amphibious assaults through world war ii were were uh done by marines i think they were a different sort of critter but yeah definitely uh i think that world war ii uh, landings and invasion efforts definitely serve uh serve as some inspiration there and there's a uh, yeah, yeah. Just the, uh, I mean, we, we all know from uh, Saving Private Ryan, right? And the uh, that whole landing scene, just the the sheer chaos. It's, uh, I think it's hard to describe for folks that haven't uh, haven't gone through that. Right. Just how strange everything becomes um, in that element, uh, and how, how strange you know that your your memories of the event are. Uh, differing from, you know, sort of what's actually happening. Right. It's, so did uh, you did you uh, uh, map it out in your uh, on paper or anything like that when you actually wrote wrote it up or prior to writing it up? Did you? Work? I had. Yes. I had some some sort of rough layouts. Uh, I wasn't you know going through and doing anything topographically. No. Uh, had uh, 
I don't know, my, uh, I guess it goes back a little bit to uh, some of the role-playing games back in the past, but a lot of that was uh, was the theater of the mind. That and I'm just uh, terrible at any sort of drawing my, you know, I, I imagine things much better than I can draw them. I, I lose the thread somewhere between my, my brain and my hands. Right. So, uh, no, I, I think it's better to keep it, uh, keep it in my head for the most part. <laughs> so which role-playing games? Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, some with champions, uh, back in the day, uh, some traveler, traveler 2300, um, AD&D, uh, some D&D, a third edition, and recently been been playing a little bit of Pathfinder. Uh, so kind of kind of kept that up off and on. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a big gamer, so I think I've talked about this with other other authors, but. Uh... Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge gamer and uh, I enjoy listening to hear how people maybe scratch a little bit of the writer's itch by, you know, either running games or uh, participating in role-playing games as they were uh, younger and, and maybe if they continued it on into their adult lives as well. So uh, it's always kind of fascinating for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, so I, uh... I scratched some of the surface on Michael here. I got some actual more information about him. <laughs> so, uh, Penultimate question, uh, what, aside from its entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading The Silent Hand? I think the... I think something that, that, that I try to come back to, that I try to sort of reemphasize is the, the importance of... of human connection and and loyalty um i think i think in the current day and age we kind of i don't know i think people tend to see each other as we're sort of viewed as this uh, amalgam of concepts there's kind of the the internet turns everyone into straw men i think and uh so seeing I don't know. Sort of hope to just reinforce that that importance, the 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 value of of you know actual human connection and actual loyalty to uh, you know the people close to you, the people that matter. Very cool. So, uh, is there any chance of seeing you at a convention soon, or uh, uh, what else do you have in the pipeline for uh, uh, other books and works that you're on? Uh, in terms of other works, uh, we've got the, the, the third book in, in this series, The Presence Malign, is in the works. I'm nearing completion on that, that uh, first draft, so that should be a long, uh, before too much longer. Um, I know I've got uh, some of my, my early readers that are excited about that, so uh, I, I also have... <laughs> not an early reader but i'm excited about it i have uh another you know uh an another uh, piece of science fiction as part of a separate separate ip that i'm also uh exploring in so we'll see if that if that gains any traction if i want to keep working on that but i'm looking at other options there uh as far as conventions i 
<laughs> I don't think uh, don't think I've got my my courage up uh, to that level yet. Maybe uh, I haven't uh, I haven't been part of the convention scene, so maybe uh, maybe I'll uh, attend a few just as a as a as a patron as a spectator uh, first and sort of get a feel for it or something. But uh, do you have any that you uh, that you recommend? Uh, yeah, um, several. Uh, Liberty Con is is really uh, fun. It's it's much more like of a family experience uh, than it is a uh, you know like you got to be on all the time or anything like that. Um, it takes place in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, every year, either the last week in June or the first week of July. That time frame in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's excellent. It's also pro heavy, so you don't. It's not going to be like your mob by. Uh, folks asking questions, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it's uh, quite a bit of fun. Uh, Dragon Con is exact opposite of that. It's it's huge. Right. A lot. It's oppressive with the number of people. Uh, World Fantasy is another one that's very pro heavy, and, and you know, can kind of get your feet wet and kind of experience what uh, what it's like to be at the different conventions. But uh, Liberty Con for sure. Uh, and it's also very uh, uh, very very friendly to Bane authors. Um, so. Uh, it it can be a, a real nice experience uh, first first con or or 160th con it's uh, it's quite a, quite a good good experience i find uh, there's a couple sure. of other ones but those are my my big three uh, there's also smaller conventions uh, out west um fog con is another one it's out out, out here in uh, in northern california uh, it's a small one uh, and it's uh, Held the Fog Con, and then there's um, which is Friends of Genre Con. Can't remember the last one, but there's a few. So, it'd be kind of interesting to be able to look around and say, "Hey, is that Michael Marcel?" <laughs> I'll have to yeah. see if I can uh, sneak through one of these. Yeah, well, I, the, Adam Savage always attends with in one of his costumes. The the guy oh, from fun. MythBusters. Yeah, yeah. So that's how he gets around, you know, ever being mobbed by fans. He just he shows up as one of the Lord of the Rings, you know, kind of the, the, the ring raids or something. So nice. Well, huh. uh, great. This has been a, a great deal of fun, and thank you for coming on the show today, Michael. Uh, and we will hopefully see you soon at a convention, uh, even if we don't necessarily know who you are. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we can keep that going uh, for as long as as needed. Hopefully, you'll feel more comfortable with your. Uh, chosen family at, uh, at, at different conventions and that kind of thing. This has been the Bain Free Radio Auditor with Michael Marceau talking about The Silent Hand. It's an excellent book. It'll be out soon. And uh, please do pick it up. It is really a really good book. Thanks, Griffin. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, 
Steel-toed boots and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Windwolf came to the scrapyard late in the morning. One moment he wasn't there, and the next he stood watching her. She stood looking back. She had been running in tight circles all morning, not wanting him to show, eager to see him, terrified of him appearing, cautioning herself that he might not come. And as the day wore on, nearly sick with the thought that she had read more into the situation and he wasn't coming, now that he was here, she had no clue to her heart. That tight circle just spun faster, emotions whirling too quickly to latch onto. Pick one, idiot, she growled at herself. Happy. I'll be happy to see him. Her happiness welled up so quickly and strongly that she suspected it was the truest of her emotions. She walked out to greet him then, a smile taking control of her face and refusing to give it up. Hi. Elegantly dressed in elfin splendor, he looked out of place in the grimy scrapyard of rusting broken metal and shattered glass. He seemed a creature woven out of the glitter of sunlight on the river. Behind him, and well back, were armed elves, his bodyguard. Windwolf nodded in greeting, an inclining of the head and shoulders that stopped just short of a bow. He presented a small silk bag to her. For you. It was high elvish, something about talking together. At least that was what she thought Paveane meant. She didn't recognize the word holorole. Tinker eyed the bag suspiciously, thinking of Lane's garden and the xenobiologist's warning. But it didn't look dangerous. What is it? Keva. Oh. Tinker took the bag, opened it, and found indeed the golden cousin to soybeans. Genetically altered for millennia, cava beans were the elfin wonder food. Raw, roasted, fried, ground for flour, or even candied, cava beans were at the base of all celebrations. These were roasted with honey, one of her favorites. Still, this was her reward for saving his life? She noticed then that one of the guards held a fabric-wrapped bundle that looked for all the world like a present. Maybe this was a weird gift-giving appetizer. Thanks. Windwolf smiled as she popped one of the mild nutty beans into her mouth. You said you would teach me horseshoes. She laughed in surprise. You really want to play? Do you enjoy playing? She nodded slowly. Yeah, it's fun. Then I wish to learn. Well, okay. Let me grab the shoes and the keys. The keys were for the gate between the scrapyard and the small wood lot next to the scrapyard. Pittsburgh had many such pockets of wildness, places too steep to build on, full of scrub trees and wild grapevines. The lot was a series of level steps between steep drops, stairs cut into the hillside leading from level to level. There, she and Oil Can had set up regulation-sized horseshoe pits. It's a simple game. You stand on one end, here, and throw the horseshoes at the stake, like so. Tinker made sure she wasn't going to hit him with her swing and tossed the horseshoe with a well-practiced underhand pitch. The horseshoe sailed the nearly 40 feet and clanged against the stake in a single clear ringing note. A ringer! That's what you're trying for. Her second shoe hit and rebounded. But that's what normally happens. He took the second set of horseshoes from her, 
he eyed the large U-shaped pieces of metal. Are the horses on Earth really this big? I don't know. I've never left Pittsburgh. So Elf Home is your home? I suppose. I think of Pittsburgh as my home, but only when it's on Elf Home. That's good to know, Windwolf said. And while she tried to decide what that meant, he copied her underhanded throw. He gracefully missed the stake by several feet. This is harder than it appears. Simple doesn't necessarily mean easy, Tinker said. They crossed the playing field to the pit to gather the shoes. Are you and your cousin orphans in this place? Well, close. Oilcan's father is alive, but he's in prison. When he gets out, he won't be able to immigrate. Will Oilcan want to see his father? Tinker shook her head and concentrated on throwing the horseshoes. His father killed his mother. Not on purpose, he just hit her too hard in anger. But dead is dead. Not surprisingly, Tinker missed the stake. Oilcan works hard at being the antithesis of his father. He never drinks to the point of being drunk. He doesn't yell or fight. And he'd cut off his hand before he'd hit someone he loved. He is a noble soul. Tinker beamed at Winwolf, inordinately pleased that he approved of her cousin. Yes, he is. My family is unusual among elves. Winwolf's horseshoe landed closer to the stake this round. We elves do not life bond as readily as you humans, and I think sometimes it is because of the manner in which we are raised. Siblings are usually centuries apart, fully grown and moved on before the next becomes the focus of their parents' attention. We are basically a race of only children, and tend to be selfish brats as a result. You're blowing my preconceived notion that you're a wise and patient race. We appear patient only because our conception of time is different. Amassing oceans of knowledge does not make you wise. They collected horseshoes with oddly musical clangs of metal on metal. But your family is different? Tinker prompted Windwolf. My mother loves children, so she had many. And she did not pace them centuries apart. She thought that when a child was old enough to seek out playmates on his or her own... It was time for another. Amazingly, my father put up with it, mostly. Perhaps their marriage would not have survived if we were not a noble house with wealth and beholden. Tinker knew that beholden were the lower castes that acted as servants to the noble caste, but she wasn't sure how it all worked. The beholden gave my father the distance he needed from so many children. Given that his mother could have spent centuries raising children, Tinker blinked at the sudden image of the old woman who lived in a shoe, children bursting out at the seams. How many kids are in your family? Ten. Only ten? Windwolf laughed. Only? I thought maybe a hundred. Or a thousand. Windwolf laughed again. No, no. Father would never submit to that. He finds ten an embarrassment he suffers only for mother's sake. Most nobles do not have any children. Windwolf's voice went bitter. There is no need for propagation when you live forever. Well, it keeps your population from growing quickly. The elfin population has only declined in the last two millennia, between war, accidental death, and occasional suicide. We are half the number we once were. That did put a different spin on things. That's not good. Yes, so I try to tell people. 
I had great hope that with this new land would come a new way of seeing the world. Had? The arrival of Pittsburgh was unexpected. Tinker winced. Sorry. It actually has been beneficial, Windwolf said. Enticing people to an utter wilderness was difficult. Few wanted to suffer the ocean crossing for so few comforts. Human culture, though, is attracting the young and the curious, the ones most likely to see things my way. Good. Tinker focused back on throwing the horseshoes. That's what she liked about the game. It encouraged a flow of conversation. What about you? What do you mean? Do you desire children? She missed the stake completely, only the chain-link fence keeping the horseshoe from vanishing into the weeds. Me? You. Or would you rather be childless? No. She blurted out the gut reaction to the question. It's just I've never thought about kids. Sure, someday I'd like to have one or two. Maybe as many as three, but hell, I've never even... She was going to say kissed a man, but she supposed that wasn't true anymore. You know? Yes, I do know, he purred, looking far too pleased. And it put a flash of heat through her. Her and Windwolf? Like her dream? Suddenly she felt the need to sit down, as if he were reading her mind. Gods, she hoped not. Windwolf indicated the battered picnic table beyond the horseshoe pit. As she clambered up to sit on the tabletop of the picnic table, she wondered what it would be like to be with him, as they had been in her dream. How old are you? For an elf, barely adult. For a human, I am ancient. I'm 210. Or 11.6 times older than she was. Nathan suddenly seemed close to her age. Is that too old? Windwolf asked. No, no, not at all. Tinker struggled for perspective. Elves were considered adults at a hundred, but until they reached a thousand, they were still young. Triples were what the elves called them, or those that could count their age in three digits. Windwolf could be compared to a man that just turned twenty, only he'd been born in the 1820s. And she was like one of Oil Can's astronomers to him, staying only long enough to break his heart. First Nathan and now Windwolf. Well, didn't her choice of men suck? Have you ever played ninepins? Windwolf asked, breaking the silence. Bowling? Yeah, but only with humans. I am much better at ninepins. Too loose as humans should never play ninepins with elves. It always ends badly for humans. This Tulu is a font of misinformation. She was completely wrong about the life debt. How so? The debt between us is not yours. It is mine, Windwolf said. Yours? How could the Count be any other way? During the fight with the Saurus? You saved my life. I was dazed and you distracted the Saurus by putting out its eye, at great risk to yourself. She blinked at him, stunned as the events now rearranged themselves in her mind. But the spell you placed on me? If I did not survive the rest of the fight, I wanted others to know you had acted with courage. You were to be adopted into my household and cared for. Oh. She didn't know what else to say. We looked for you after the fight, but we thought you were a boy. We asked about the boy, and no one knew who we were asking about. 
How could Tulu have gotten it so wrong? Or had Tulu been lying all this time? But why? Tinker struggled to keep faith in the crazy old half-elf. Windwolf could be lying to her now. But why would he? His version of the event certainly matched what she remembered better and made more sense. I must go. There are days when, even for elves, there is not enough time. Windwolf waved the guard with the present forward, took it, and banished both guards back to the scrapyard. Last I saw you, you were a child, and now you are an adult. I want to grasp this moment before this too slips away. He held out the present. The cava beans had been harmless enough, and this gift looked no larger than the last. Is this for me? If you desire it. Why did elves make everything seem so dangerous? It was just a small fabric-wrapped bundle. What is it? I thought it best to stay with the traditional gift for the occasion. Trust elves to have a traditional gift for saving one's life. She unwrapped it tentatively. She was glad he had told her it was a traditional gift. Certainly it wasn't what she expected. She wasn't even sure what it was. It seemed to be a metal bowl, intricately worked as one expected of an elfin work, yet it stood on three legs anchored to a disc of marble. It had quite a heft to it, and what impressed her most was that Winwolf had made it seem so lightweight. She tried not to compare it with Lane's entire garden. The child in her, though, wanted to cry. That's it? Do you accept? Yes. He smiled. It was like the sun coming out. He spoke a word in high elvish and kissed her on the forehead. The touch of his lips seemed to sizzle on her skin. That was another installment in Wind Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judgewitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.